the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Planted with Sarah Pyan. I'm Sarah Pyan, your host, and today we have Britt Smith on the show. She is a cannabis journalist and host of the Different Leaf podcast, which provides a roadmap to an evolving landscape for new and experienced cannabis consumers. I love geeking out with Britt, and I was lucky enough to be on her show, and we've had some great conversations in between. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to sharing with you all the wonderful things she does. Thank you, Britt, for joining us today. It's it's awesome to see your face and to be able to talk to you. Thank you so, so much for having me here. Um, absolute pleasure to be with you. So I'm going to ask you the question I ask all my guests. Tell okay. us about your first cannabis experience. Oh, boy, we, we are going back more than 20 years here. Um, <laughs> I was the first time I tried cannabis, I was 14 years old. Um, so obviously I'm from England, so it, it was a bit of a different cannabis experience than I think most Americans have had in that it wasn't like green cannabis. It was like a rock solid piece of hash that came from Amsterdam and that you had to sort of burn and then crumble over tobacco. And that was the first kind of cannabis that I smoked. I did not understand how it was cannabis. I looked at it like, okay, if you say so, um, <laughs> you know, so I watched somebody, um, we, we'd taken like a class off school or something like we, we bunked off the last lesson and went around this sort of field at the back of my school and somebody was sitting out there rolling a joint and I sort of, I watched them and I was like, that's weed. I thought it was a plant, but okay, that's. That seems like fun. Let's do it. Um, and I remember hitting it once and being sky high. Like I couldn't figure out which bus to get home. I didn't really know which way was up. Um, I remember laying on the field, looking up at the clouds for a very long time. But needless to say, it was a pretty, uh, it, it was a, a pretty successful experience, I think, because I don't remember a whole lot else. Um, I do remember <laughs> getting a bunch of chocolate on the way home and just eating munchies in my bedroom and then spraying a lot to uh, and like using mouthwash to try and make sure that my parents had no idea what I'd done but that was it it was just a nice afternoon uh in sunny old England right on well, you know it's funny it's like my my friends from Europe like in the past it's like they've always said I grew up smoking spliffs yeah uh, this whole thing of like a joint with just cannabis in it is completely foreign to me yeah. I, and and a lot of times they've they've said because of what they they grew up using that they actually preferred spliffs over joints. But what what's your thought on that? Well, now that I'm over here and I've got access to the kind of cannabis that I can put in a like a pipe and you know or a joint and smoke it, I much prefer that. Um, but honestly, I haven't tried a lot of hash. There's not a lot of it out here. There's not a lot of that solid little brick weed that we used to get back home and when I go back home most people uh have now got access to you know the good green bud somewhere somebody has medical or they're just growing it themselves so I think that it's slowed down out there and I haven't had it in so long I don't know that I'd try it anymore it's essentially just keef right like the powdery stuff from the cannabis plant sort of crushed all together and packed all in together so I guess I do have some of that but I sprinkle it on top of green like hardcore. I don't sprinkle it anymore on top of tobacco. I gave up tobacco many years ago. And I think I think that that's probably part of of why I like the green kind of cannabis a lot more than the than the brick stuff as well, because you have to 
you have to smoke tobacco and I just do not dig it. Yeah, it's it's not my thing either. Even with uh, occasionally I'll I'll enjoy um not a spliff but you know a blunt with somebody and I always find that because I'm not used to tobacco I I also stopped smoking tobacco many many years ago. It's I, it's like a, a lighter touch because otherwise it just makes your your lungs seize for some of us. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But when you come to California and you visit me, I, I will I will share some lovely, lovely hash with you that I think you'll enjoy. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> I would love to get back to my roots and try some really good hash. That sounds great. Um, when you, you, you've done a lot of things and you came all the way over here to the States to, to live and, and, you know, experience what we do in our crazy ass country. <laughs> what what got you into working in cannabis journalism and being a podcast host and and what fascinates you about the plant that really drew you in yeah so i i obviously i was a cannabis consumer in high school like i said but when i first came to the u.s I moved to Texas and being in Texas as a foreigner, I did not want to touch any drugs at all. So really that, you know, in 2006, when I got here age 19, that was it for me. I didn't touch weed for many, many years, probably five or six years till I got to California where it was legal. And the way that I got interested in it was because I had gallstones. I was 26 and I had this horrible pain um in my belly and i had no health insurance i was a waitress i was going to school i was a swim teacher and and one of my roommates offered me some weed to help with the pain that he had gotten through a medical card and one hit and i was like oh there goes the pain it's gone and it just sort of opened up my mind to the idea that this was useful for other things than just recreation when you're a high schooler and you're just trying to get high with your friends and i thought actually that was a medical use and the side effect is a little bit of a high, but the pain is gone. And I'd never felt something that gave me pain relief that quickly or that fully before. And I was able to continue with my work. You know, I was able to wait tables. I was um, able to finish my schoolwork and, <clears throat> and it really changed my, my view on cannabis, but it wasn't for a couple more years till 2015 when I got to uh, study at UC Berkeley up in the Bay area that I started to get interested in studying cannabis and understanding how it worked for so many different ailments. So when I got up there, um, my mother, who was back in London, was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. And I was like, I, I don't know, I felt like I had no power over there. I had no control. I couldn't support her in any way. I was so far away. But the thing that I could do was research what I had heard that, that cannabis helped cancer patients in pain. And I, I was like, I know it helps pain. Um, and that even, you know, there were some studies that it could uh, cause cancer cells to, to commit su cell suicide. And I was just fascinated by this, the whole area of cannabis and cancer. So I took some of those little one credit classes that you can take like on uh, gardening and, and one that was on like human biology that was about you know, how cancer really works in the body. And I would just like pick the brains uh, of these professors after hours, they were very annoyed by me. But I was like, I asked the gardening professor, like, I know you grow cannabis, you're a gardening professor at Berkeley, you must know about weed. That would make this sense. Guy, <laughs> <laughs> this guy knew everything. And he told me a lot about what a lot of our community now talks about, which is how, you know, the endocannabinoid system works and how cannabis is helpful for lots of different ailments through this system in our body. And, 
Yeah, I essentially I sort of did my own research at Berkeley. Like you, you have access to their library. I stayed up for hours just reading old papers, and I really geeked out on the medical side of it. I was so so fascinated by it. My dad was a doctor, so I think growing up I was often in conversation with him about how the body worked and and all these systems and and health in general. So when I found this new system in the body, I was like, oh my gosh, I have to tell everybody. <laughs> I have to tell my parents to start with. So my parents were really the first people that I tried to educate and like pass this knowledge onto. And it was the first time I was met with that stigma that we all know and love where people are like, but it's a drug, it can't be medicine, you know? And um, around 2017, um, I graduated from, from Berkeley and I moved out to Massachusetts. My husband was going to school out here and they were just starting the recreational um, industry out here. It had just been voted in and I joined a newsroom uh, as a writer. I was just writing scripts for WBZ News Radio and I was handing it to the anchors and they were reading it. And slowly but surely cannabis started creeping into the reporting because they were starting to see like the Cannabis Control Commission was set up and then people were applying for licenses and then folks wanted to talk about social equity. And then there were cannabis doctors and they were like, what makes you a cannabis doctor? And there were so many questions floating around. One of the reporters in the newsroom said to me, hey, Britt, you went to Berkeley. You probably know a little bit about cannabis, right? And I was like, yeah, as it goes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for profiling me. But yes, I do happen to have studied a little bit about cannabis and I understand it. And uh, they wanted to know, like, what does CBD stand for? You know, basic things that could help them with their reporting. But it was another angle for me that I could look at cannabis, like how is this industry growing and how are people getting educated? How are they learning about cannabis before we use it recreationally? Like what are they being told about products and who's testing these products? And there were just so many new areas that I could get interested in. So after studying all of that medical efficacy and, and you know, trying to pass on some of that knowledge, I got to know, like, this is actually a cultural movement. And there's uh, jobs that can be created here. And now there's new laws. And it just opened this entire world to me. And as a bit of a nerd, in general, like, I like to read deeply on things. I just thought, like, how could I, how could I not watch this entire industry grow from scratch? This is going to be fascinating. This is all I want to report on now. And so iHeartRadio, who owned the WBZ that I was writing for. They said, anybody wants to start a podcast, anything you're interested in, as long as you do the work, you can do it. And so I stayed after work two hours every night and I did my own little podcast and it was called Blunt Talk. And I followed along with the Massachusetts cannabis industry as it started to unfold from like 2018, early 2018 onwards until the pandemic, um, which obviously forced us all out of the newsroom and all all podcasts were stopped. But during that first show, I got to interview some of the most fascinating people who were starting the Massachusetts cannabis world, you know, um, like the advocates and the lawmakers. And it was just, it was, there was a lot to, to cover. So when that show ended, um, there was a beautiful little magazine from central Massachusetts called Different Leaf. And they reached out and they said, hey, we've heard your podcast. We'd like to start a podcast you know, to go with our magazine. So, you know, this will be a, a bit more space to talk more about the culture. And I was really interested in that. So we've now been collaborating for three years. I've been running the Different Leaf podcast since uh, like the week the pandemic started. Wow. Yeah. So yeah, everything's been running for the last three years from home, but I've, I've gotten to interview some incredible people on the show. 
Yeah. What have been some of your favorite interviews? Um, I think one of my favorites was Ed Rosenthal. I love talking to Ed Rosenthal. Oh, he never remembers that we've spoken before. <laughs> <laughs> Ed's awesome. He's just a well a wealth of knowledge. Like I, I could pick his brain for hours. Um, I also got to speak with Stevie Van Zand, who was very cool. He's the guitarist uh, from the E Street Band, and he has gotten into really low low grade THC high high CBD pre rolls. Um, and he's partnered with Chem Dog, who was another one of my favorite um, interviews. The man behind the the strain. Um, so that you know, there's been some pretty cool people out here that I've gotten to to chat with. Um, I think that one of my favorite things, though, is honestly getting out into the world of events and like talking to the people that are actually part of the community out here um, and seeing what's new and what's going on. There's a lot of inventions and a lot of um, like new products that I like to keep up with. So it's not always, you know, the cool, famous people with amazing stories that I like to talk to. I like to talk to the folks on the front line of the industry as well. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. It's that that's kind of the same mix that I've I've had on the podcast as well. It's it's wonderful to meet people who are cultural icons and get their take on it. And it's also really essential to be having the conversations with people that are actively working in the industry, making changes that aren't as well known because these are the people that are really making it happen. And they have they have fascinating stories. I I love, yeah. love the conversations. Don't you always find that when you ask somebody, how did you get into cannabis? Why did you get into cannabis? It's unlike any answer for anybody else in any other industry. It's always a really heartfelt reason behind why they care about this industry. It's like you don't find that in in the beverage sector, the alcohol sector. Like you don't find, I don't think you find that like unless it's music maybe, that people really get into the industry for the love and the care of it, you know? Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. I think with like like reflecting on alcohol I could see where there might be there are some small artisan makers that you might be able to have that conversation with but by and large you just don't you don't see the heart that you see amongst our colleagues yeah yeah, yeah there's a lot there's a lot of love in the cannabis community that's for sure yeah well and I I think it's really it's it's very interesting looking at what we see in different parts of the country. Like yes. what I've been experiencing here on the West Coast is probably really different than what you've experienced on the East Coast. I mean, we they say the coast, you know, they call us the coastal elites, you know, right. with the trendsetters. <laughs> we made it. I know. Yay. <laughs> but, you know, each of the coasts are trendsetters in their own right. And they really, every everybody in between kind of, is influenced by what happens, you know, when you know, I always think of though the East Coast is like much more like, well, you know, I, th I guess I'm thinking about like New York where it's like everything's fast, fast, fast. Everybody all wears black. Of course, I do too. Um, and I'm on the West Coast. And then the East Coast is kind of like we're just a little bit more chill and like getting into, I don't know, our macrame or whatever. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's very true that, that um, of all the places that I've lived in the United States, um, I've been in Georgia, Texas, Southern California, Northern California, Massachusetts, and all of them have very distinct cultures in general, like against the rest of the United States, but then also that's reflected in the cannabis communities. 
so like I've recently been down to Texas and I just wanted to know what was going on with like CBD Delta eight. Do people really care? Is it just little shops? No, they want CBD infused barbecue sauce, you know, and like yeah. out here in the North, we want THC infused ice cream and, and it's, it's all very reflective of, of the local culture. So I think that you're right. The East coast and West coast I've noticed just really, really different views on marijuana, the way that people interact with cannabis and with each other is mm -hmm. really different as well. Like I found out West, nobody cares if you're sitting in a park and smoking in California and you have a little, you know, a joint with you, but that might be cracked down on in somewhere like Massachusetts or New Hampshire, maybe, I don't know, like somewhere with a, with a bit more stricter rules and less of a, a welcoming um, open out in the air kind of culture. Like there's a lot of p people out here that are like, we don't want to smell that, you know, um, you can do it in on your own property, but people sort of keep to themselves a little more. There's not many lounges out here where you can go and socialize. There's one in the state of Massachusetts and it's a, it's like a private cannabis club that you belong to as a member and you can go and smoke, but there's nowhere else that we can sort of corral together and you know, unless it's, I guess, a festival in the summer, nobody mm -hmm. really cares about those. But yeah, like we don't have the beach culture where you'll go and enjoy some gummies on the beach with your friends. I don't think, I mean, <laughs> maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I just don't go to Cape Cod often enough, but I don't <laughs> think that that's a really major part of the cannabis community out here. I think it's more like small groups of friends getting together and enjoying it around a fire pit, that kind of a vibe. Whereas, you know, California, everybody's popping a gummy before brunch like it's just part of your daily <laughs> right your daily intake <laughs> well I, I think you know cannabis culture has been I mean it's everywhere of course but it it's really been more embedded in California for a long time like I I originally come from northern Michigan where when I was going to school you could go to jail for resin in your bowl but wow. if you traveled eight hours south of me where I was raised to like Ann Arbor a much more liberal culture where they have like a $5 fine for having weed. So when I moved to California and I, I landed in, in the hate, I was living there for a year. I remember walking down the street and smelling cannabis and just like stopping and like, and I, you know, I smoked, but I still had that very, like very conservative view of, you know, it has to be private where no one else yeah. can smell it because you might get in trouble. And then you're smelling it when you're walking down the street and nobody cares. <laughs> Nobody's <laughs> looking. Nobody cares at all. That's it. And it's, you know, and then that, not too long after that was when they started cracking down on cigarette smoking in the bars. So you'd be at concerts and somebody, you know, some people were still trying to buck the system and smoking cigarettes indoors. And you'd see people pulling cigarettes out of people's hands or mouths and like ashing them out for them, but nobody yeah. would bug the joint smokers. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. It's like, we don't want your secondhand tobacco smoke, but I don't mind if I get a little contact high off your joint. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I think that that's really true. You know, uh, there's there's different situations that we'll use it in. East and West Coast we have very different weather as well, which I think really impacts how we um, commune together and when we get the opportunity to, to sit around and smoke. I will say that the festivals out here have started becoming a bit more California feeling. Like the 420 Festival on the Boston Common it's so hazy. You can't see 10 feet in front of your face. It's oh, really? insane. 
at 4.20, everybody sparks up and the entire, like there's a cloud over, they've had helicopters fly over the Boston Common at 4.20 on 4.20. The cloud is insane. Like there's, you can't be walking by and not getting high off of this. So I will say there's a, there's a little more public use becoming, you know, acceptable, but I think that there is still that feel of like, you should, you should keep it to yourself and just you and your friends and, you know, not doing it in public too much. Yeah. Yeah. The, even though we still have our own challenges with public consumption events, we definitely see a lot of that here in California. Um, before I worked in cannabis, I used to take the day off for 420 and go with my roommate to um, to Hippie Hill and yes. smoke on 420. And back yeah. then, you you could smell it, but it'd be like little groups of people just around the park. And now that place on 420... I, I think it's great people are having fun, but being that I do not like large crowds, you will not find me anywhere near that. I'm like, I'm like, have fun, clean up after yourself, party safe and hydrate, and I'll see you in a couple days. Yeah, it's definitely grown to something sort of crazy. It's no longer the counterculture, right? Like it used to be in the 70s. It's now like, this is the mainstream and there are thousands of people congregating together to smoke and it, it gets kind of intense I think yeah yeah it does it, you know and when we look at like the different states it, it's funny it's like like you said you've you've been to several states you've lived in them you've experienced it you know sometimes I think even for ourselves like like you know I was born and raised here and I never really considered the fact that each of the states kind of have their own personality and their own culture. We're like a bunch of, in many ways, we're a bunch of little countries that speak yeah. the same language, yeah. but we have very different values. I mean, there's, there are sections like the Midwest definitely has like its own feel. And then, you know, the coasts and, you know, and, and then the South, you know, it's, it's really fascinating because then we can actually notice how, cannabis policy comes together because it's not necessarily based on fact. There is that that comes into play, but there's also stigma. And then there's also the state culture. So, you know, it, it's a fascinating thing to look at. And, and I, I think it's, you know, it's important that policy reflect the culture of the place in which it's going to be, you know, overreaching over, but I also see where I feel like in a lot of ways we should be paying attention to what one another is doing more than we are because there's a lot of inefficiencies and in reinventing the wheel and making a lot of the same mistakes that other states are. And I I really hope that there ends up being more reflection, especially as people from other states talk to each other more and the regulators meet together more to reflect on experiences but I, I still think we have a lot of work to do around that. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. It's like we, we could be learning from each other's mistakes and, um, you know, learning how to do it better next time a state legalizes. And I think that there is some sort of collaboration among, you know, like Missouri just went wreck. And I, I think that they took a long look at how other wreck states had done things. Massachusetts is a bit of a cautionary tale that I think that a lot of states can learn from. It was such a slow, slow rollout. And then the oversight over um, like the agreements between cannabis industry, uh, cannabis companies and their towns, uh, there's really no oversight. And there was a lot of corruption at first. 
um and and i think that new york is interesting to watch as they start to come online as well so like you're, you're right every time a new state does something it's really interesting to see how they're doing it but uh, there are very there there seem to be too many i think pushbacks from the lawmakers um like i said i was just recently in texas there's been like five or six cities that have voted to decriminalize things are moving out there people want access the medical advocacy is huge but lawmakers are saying we're just not going to enforce what you voted for because we think it goes against the state law and that should supersede the city mandates which you voted for so you know there's they can watch as much as they want how well another state has done but the people can only do so much if their lawmakers are going to stand in their way of actual change so like anytime we see new growth in a medical program it's been so much work to do that in some states and in other states it's flown through with with great support so mm -hmm. i think that there's probably more cautionary tales that we're going to learn from from the red states from watching how they sort of go back and forth on it honestly yeah I can I can definitely see that. It's interesting to see the different models. Like when I a couple of summers ago I went to do some work in Oklahoma and um that was where you saw dispensaries everywhere. It was just kind of like they had a very like free market libertarian way that they approached it. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was a really interesting exercise. Uh, I also saw a lot of empty storefronts that had once been dispensaries. So you're kind of seeing how that was panning out. And so I I find it fascinating how how they they approach it, what what they're learning from that and what we can learn. Also, when we're looking at these policies, um, a few episodes ago, I had Sam Darkangelo from the Cannabis Voter Project on the show, and we were talking about how cannabis is nonpartisan, and there are actually there are actually more people um, that are there are more Republicans that actually support legalization than may admit it. And when we're looking at cannabis policy, when people are upset about how things are working or their access, I think that this is really a call for the public to learn more about civics, how it's set mm -hmm. up, and also the fact that our policymakers have an outdated version of, or an outdated vision, I should say, of what a cannabis user is, what they look like, how they behave. You know, it's that outdated trope, which is, you know, just infused with stigma about, you know, somebody who's who's lazy, who probably has other vices, who, you know, isn't going to be interested in politics. So it really doesn't matter. They don't have to represent them with mm. the conversations. And it's it's time for people to really come out of the cannabis closet and let their lawmakers know who depend on their votes to keep their jobs that, you know, they use cannabis they are, you know, they're a contributing member of society. They pay taxes and they vote. And and if they if these lawmakers could spend an afternoon in I believe any dispensary waiting room, they would really see that there is a broad representation of their constituents and they really need to be more mindful of what they're doing around this. And I think that it actually even reflects further beyond like Sam and I talked about how it's even beyond cannabis, but that's just one subject to draw people in to become more involved with the process because your vote really matters. And, yeah. you know, if you have the time to write letters to your representatives, they get enough of them and they understand what the demand is 
then they feel safer standing up for a lot of these rights and policies that other people might have in the past looked at as objectionable from a stigma lens. Mm -hmm. You're so right. Like it's about whether the lawmakers think that they've got the support to push through a bill, because if they don't think that they've got the support for it and it's going to lose them power in some way, then they just won't do it. But if they can see the numbers of us out there that genuinely think that this is something that we should you know, have access to, have the right and personal freedom to, um, then change really will happen. I mean, w what else does 90% of America agree on? Nothing. Mm -hmm. the, the one thing that I think both sides of the aisle and anybody really in between can agree on is that we should be able to have access, have the option to use cannabis if we want, the same way that we have to alcohol, tobacco, any other vice that we might choose to enjoy not just for personal freedom, not just for medical reasons, but because we've been lied to for so many years and so many people have been harmed and impacted negatively from it, that it's time for change because thanks to the internet, we've been able to spread this knowledge. And now <laughs> we're no longer, you know, just sucking up the propaganda that the government are putting out. There is pushback, there is research, there, there's, there's advocates that have stories behind why they think that it should be legalized. Like, I think that a lot of the push for legalization, especially in states where it's getting that pushback from lawmakers, is coming from folks who are trying to treat their children with cannabis. A lot of the time, those are the sorts of stories that move hearts. Those are the brave people that try and give their kids life-saving medication in states where it could be, have them their children taken away from them. Mm -hmm. And they're really the people that are like moving the conversation, they're going to the state capitals, they're lobbying in the offices, they're calling people. And the more of us that show our support for these parents and these folks that are trying to treat with medicine, you know, the, the quicker I think that we'll see the tide turn. Yeah, I agree. I, I'd also add to that, that it's, it's the first step into having a regulated cannabis environment. But once we get into adult use, the biggest mistake that's made is we start to forget about those patients and the reason that we actually are here doing what we're doing, mm -hmm. which is why I love that New York is trying to get cannabis, medicinal cannabis covered by insurance. What are your, what are your thoughts on that? that? Isn't that cool? I couldn't believe that. That was, I was like groundbreaking. That is really cool. I don't, <laughs> on the best day, I don't understand the American insurance system. <laughs> Right, <laughs> the country with the NHS, like I, I'd go to the doctor and I'd say thank you very much, and I'd be on my way. There is no, there is no money exchanged at the point of care. There is no money exchanged afterwards. So coming here and trying to wrap my head around the insurance system was one thing. Trying to use it has been a whole other thing. It's it's really very complex. But I think if there's an option for cannabis to be covered, it legitimizes it as a medicine. It allows people to have the option, you know, instead of, say, opioids. And, and it just expands that access a little more, makes it a little more affordable for people to, to try it and see if it, if it might help you. And if the, the benefits of it outweigh the risks of it, you know, that's, that's your medicine now. And that can, I think the only real issue is how do you cover a plant substance medicine? Has that ever been done before? The dosing is really interesting to me, you know, like a, obviously a doctor would have to recommend you a certain dose or a certain method of ingestion, tincture, gummies, flour, whatever. But I can see there being some pushback there on like, 
why would the insurance company want to cover 30% DHC flour when they could cover the cheaper stuff, the, the shake, the 10%, whatever. Um, and we'll start piecing apart the plant about what is and isn't coverable and CBD and THC separately. We'll be, you know, putting apart this terpenes covered, but <laughs> this cannabinoid is not. So I'm very interested to see how they'll do it and whether I can start to understand how insurance works in general. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could help you with that, but I tend to be on hold a long time with my provider on the regular. <laughs> <laughs> It's so frustrating. Can you imagine being like, I need a, like, it's, it's silly that we still have to call our medicine by these names, I think, but <laughs> I need an eighth of white widow, um, you know, a week from as my medication. And then there'll be like, where does it come from? We have to have certain testing on it. We, you know, there's just going to be so many barriers to it. When I saw that article, I was like, insurance? Involving in cannabis? It's still federally illegal. How in the world would that even work, you know? Right. That was that was exactly what I was thinking too, because before New York did this several years ago, I was actually having conversations with um, a colleague of mine, um, and he was mentioning that he really wanted to see this happen. And that was the first thing that came to mind for me too. Until it changes at a federal level, how can we even have that conversation? So I'm fascinated by New York approaching it and like wondering if they're actually going to be able to do something about it now or if they're just setting the foundation to bring these conversations to D.C. Mm, that might be more of what's going on to sort of just spark some conversations about how it could be dealt with, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And, and piggybacking on that, I've been having some conversations this week about taxation and THC percentages. I actually did a study this week with some researchers and they were asking me about it because – I'm chair of the medicinal subcommittee for California, and um, I just feel like the way that they're doing it, the way that they're approaching it, actually, the person, the people that it's going to hurt the most are the ones that need it the most because they're not yeah. taking into consideration that there are all these medicinal users that no, don't necessarily have recommendations for medical cannabis anymore because they can go and get it at the shop. And if they don't, because they were asking, you know, well, what if we didn't do THC taxes for medicinal use and we only did it for people who were using it, you know, they love to say recreationally, but, you know, it, it's, you know, there, yes. And yes, there are people who are using it recreationally and people who are using it both recreationally and medicinally. Sure. But the thing I think that a lot of the policymakers don't understand is that when we went into adult use cannabis, more people approached it and purchased it without a recommendation, but were using it for symptom management. Some of them are critically ill because they don't want to pay for the cards. They don't want to have that conversation with their doctor and ask for the recommendation. They just want to take it and go. And if they start to just, you know, to offer it like it from a medicinal level, it's going to be very difficult for those products to stay in stock because there just aren't enough people that are purchasing from a medical, medicinal, like a, a tr like a, I guess, how would you say it? Like a documented medicinal yeah. use. That's, it's so interesting to me that everybody's focus is on THC. They're like, 
Right. This is the one cannabinoid that uh, really causes the euphoria. So we've got to go really easy on it and we can't have too much of it. And it's like some medical patients need dabs that are like 80% for the pain, for the tolerance that they have. Um, sometimes Rick Simpson oil is what you need and that's going to be sky high percentages, but that's what, you know, uh, I don't know, kills the, kills the cancer cells or it's just like sometimes people do need higher level higher levels of THC. It is a medical cannabinoid. Its side effect is the euphoria. And everybody seems to be really afraid of euphoria. I'm like, do y'all remember that we have alcohol? We can get wasted anytime. Like, <laughs> Yeah, and that can kill you if you take more than you should. Exactly. And here we are demonizing and trying to tax one of the of the molecules that comes from this plant that is medicinal. But none of the others like why aren't we i don't know why aren't we looking at delta 8 and trying to tax that highly and i i just i don't think that it'll put anybody off trying to get high levels of thc it's just going to cost people more right and that's that's hard for people who are critically and chronically ill and they're already struggling to be able to afford what they need also edibles people are using edibles much like pharmaceuticals to get relief and what we're not talking about, because this is where policymakers need more education, is that THC is only one indicator of strength. Like mm. I, I had had Ed Rosenthal on the show was it last summer, and we were talking, and we were talking about one of um, one of the cultivars he came up with, J twenty seven, and that was like in the low, like I think I want to say it, was, it went somewhere between like twenty three and twenty five percent THC. Mm-hmm. But what I found was that people who were using it and reporting back to me were saying that it was a manageable euphoria and the pain management was amazing. It was functional. They said, you know, it was functional pain relief for them. Mm-hmm. And then you can get a really interesting cultivar that's like, say, 13% THC. But the terpene profile also determines the feel. And so when we're looking at entourage effect, that 13% THC can feel more intense than something that's in the early 20s just because of the makeup of all the other things that are coming into play, like those interesting terpene profiles. That's such a good point, man. I am glad that you're on advisory committees because you know how to put it, you know. There's a lot of people out there who are just like unsure of how to how to word these things i think there's a lot of advocates out there that want to push back on moves like that like taxing thc and they just don't really know how to explain it but i think with yeah you know like we've got to get more education out there about really (laughs) thc has been demonized and it is it is far from the only um molecule in this plant that is doing work here and it's also you know, a, a mixture of things that that creates that effect, like you said. So, yeah, we're going to be seeing a lot of people try, I think, and force us to be like, you can smoke this or you can eat that, but you're not allowed this part of the plant or this part of the plant. And I'm like, remember, this is a whole plant medicine. We should have access to be able to grow our own marijuana if we want to as well. Let's, you know, keep to the basic stuff, not let them piece apart the plant and tell us what we can and can't use. Right, right. Yeah. And that's interesting too. Some states aren't allowing home cultivation. And I, I, and I know that a lot of that actually has to do with companies not wanting the competition, but yeah. people can grow tomatoes and they're still buying them at the store. 
that's what I'm saying. I cannot grow weed like my local oh, me neither. can grow weed. It's fun to have a little plant in my house, but it's not going to replace the entire ind- industry for me. I'm still going to go to the dispensary. And yeah, similarly, like I can grow some strawberries in my backyard, but they do not taste as good as the local farm. It's not going to slow down your sales. There's just not enough people to threaten your business to be growing at home like that. So I really think there are there are some states where, um, like in New Hampshire, there were all of the dispensaries came together and they said, we support home grow. This is the live free or die state, you know, like you should be able to grow your own weed out here, man. And they, I think that they realized that supporting the community like that allowed the communities to support them back. Right. Because they were like, yeah, we will grow our own weed, but we also come to you for specific strains. We can only grow a couple different strains ourselves. What if I want gummies? I'm not going to make them myself. I'm going to come to you. What if I want really heavy oil? I'm not going to do that extraction process. I'll come to you because you supported me having my rights, you know? So there's that, that sort of symbiotic relationship going on. I think where there are, there are states where the advocates are, are standing up for themselves and they're, they're making sure that the dispensaries are on their side and that they see that it's really home grow is not gonna close your shop down do not worry there are people that brew their own beer <laughs> but Budweiser is doing just fine yeah that's it I put it must have been like 12 years ago I made some liqueurs for Christmas I made a Vinda orange and I did a Nuccino and it Ooh. was it was fun and I don't know if I'll ever do it again because <laughs> it was so much what? work that's yeah work. But, you know, there's also the aspect, the therapeutic aspect of growing something, the cultivation. Like here in California, we have some groups that, you know, are working with veterans to have them be part of the cultivation process because it is such a wonderful therapeutic thing to get your hands in the soil and to see, to be with the plants. Like there's, I remember the first time I walked into a grow, like there was nothing like it, like the energy that just comes out of that at the risk of sounding slightly hippy dippy, Uh, (laughs) you know, but there's, there's that therapeutic aspect of that as well. And I think it's something that we can't ignore. And people love to just geek out on stuff and do things on their own. It's just, you know, cr- giving the education and creating the safe space to be able to do that. Now, you know, pushing butane extracts in your kitchen is not something that I would ever recommend. And you can see a lot of lovely news stories about people who have done that and that's gone wrong. So those of you listening out there, please know that's not what we're talking about. Don't try this at home. (laughs) Don't try that at home. No, but growing is great. Like I, I used to grow in my little patio area and, you know, it was just fun to see the the experience and and I actually let some go to seed. I kept a male and a female plant because I wanted to propagate seeds. And mm. I'm my area that I'm in is like shielded enough so that none of the pollen can go and ruin anyone else's grow. But I'm also in a city, so it's kind of like there's a lot of buildings in between me and anybody who would be growing. That's very thoughtful of you. I never would have thought of the pollen growing outside and how that might affect others. Oh yeah, well, I mean that's that was like some of the issues around you know hemp and cannabis that is rich in THC, like growing near one another, there have been issues with that. So, you know, but I can't say like, I'm still still learning about growing. Me too. I have a brown thumb, Britt. Like it's bad. (laughs) I I, I joke, like you could spin a wheel behind me with like all the different things about cannabis and wherever it stops. I could talk to you about it 
but not cultivation. <laughs> it's not easy to grow. It really isn't. No. There's a, there's a lot of knowledge, a lot of time, a lot of energy that goes into it. But like you said, I think it's really rewarding. Um, my husband is a veteran and he loves my, when I put a grow tent in the basement, he'd go down there and tend to all the plants, you know, and just awesome. spend time, spend time with them. And it's like, really, it's meditative for him. And now I've got this little robot that grows a cannabis plant for me. What? And it keeps control. Yeah. Keeps control of everything. It checks all the, uh, like the chemicals in the water. It's hydroponic. It, it has a lamp over the top of it. So like growing can also be automated and can just be something that's sort of a nice piece of home decor. Like it doesn't have to be all that work anymore. It can also like there's, there's technology now. It can be something kind of cool in your house. That's so cool. I love that. I love that. I, I'm going to – another time I'm going to have to pick your brain on that because that's <laughs> yeah. that sounds like fun. Not that I have the room in my little place here in Oakland, but I would love to, like, play with that one of these days. Yeah, it's really fun. I think the future of growing is um, is a really interesting place, not only, like, how they're growing on the farm and all the technologies that they're using there – but like how we can grow at home with AI and I've, there's a little camera in this thing that watches the plant and looks for mold and you know there's it, it, there's just so much that's happening in the world of cannabis this is why I can't stop reporting on it there's so right. many cool new things like yeah the next few years excite me well and getting into the next few years what are you excited about what are you hopeful about um, I'm really excited to see as each state legalizes how they do it differently and how little cannabis communities are forming in each of these states and how we're starting to see that no matter how many things we disagree about, there is actually one thing that most of us are on the same page about. And I really love that we're able to build this nationwide community or like web of communities, I guess, that's actually bringing us a little closer together. It's also helping us to be healthy. I'm really, really excited to see where research goes in the coming years, because as those states start to legalize and the federal government start to consider it more, we'll be able to see more research, more medical research. And that's where we'll start to see lives saved. And we'll see, you know, the healthcare industry will change. The way we think about medicine will change. The way we think about our overall life how, how happy we are in life, what matters to us. It's going to change so many parts of our culture and our, our everyday living experience. I'm just, I, I, I sound like I'm really pumping it up too much, like it's going to change the whole world, but I just see so many parts of everyday life that will be impacted by cannabis research that it really, really excites me. Um, the other area that I'm excited about seeing more is the technology, like I was talking about with, with the Anaboto, my cannabis growing robot. I want to see where else AI takes us. AI is a little scary to me. And <laughs> as a writer, yeah. chat GPT scares the crap out of me. But um, I do want to see what it can do for us, um, you know, to help us understand more about the plant, how we could use it more efficiently. Um, those sorts of, of research and, and technological adaptions, I think, are going to be pretty cool to watch. So yeah there's there's so many facets of this industry that are just incredible to see grow um i'm really excited also for for the summer for different leaf we're going to be doing an entire season that is on travel and tourism and culture around around how we move around to access cannabis and we'll be looking at how the different states just like we were talking about how you can enjoy cannabis in the different states the, the kinds of things that you need to watch out for legally 
um, the kinds of options you'll have. So really this summer for me is about exploring the US and like what is on offer in all these different states and how understanding different cultures and different parts of the US can influence how I interact with weed. Because going to a state without too much THC, it makes you enjoy the CBD. You really do, you know, sit down and take it slower. So, you know, there's just, uh, uh, take your pick. There's a plethora of things I'm watching at the moment. I'm I'm so excited to have that conversation with you in the future. I can't wait to listen to it this summer and, and go on that journey with you because you just, I, I love what you do. You just, you, so much. you have such great content and I feel like it's so accessible for people. And that's, that's what we need. We, we need more of those conversations. And, uh, and of course, you know, I always love talking to you. The first time we had a conversation, it was just like, blah, 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 oh, blah. We just like, a, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Old friends. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We can right. talk all day. Well, yeah. For people who want to, to follow your programming and follow you, um, how should they do that? Yeah, you can find us um, on any podcast platform, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, anywhere. Search for Different Leaf. Um, our magazine is available for sale at differentleaf.com. And you can also find there all of the in-person locations that are selling Different Leaf because the magazine is in select Barnes & Noble, CVS, Walmarts, um, select dispensaries around the US and Canada as well. So uh, you can get your magazine online, differentleaf.com, check out the podcast. And we're also on social media at Different Leaf. And I'm on social media at Brit the British. Thank you so much. It's always, always a pleasure to sit down with you. And I, like I said before, I'm looking forward to our future conversations. Everybody, check Brit's podcast out, check out the magazine. I think you'll really enjoy it. Thank you so much, Sarah. And everyone remember, Planted is twice a month. And if you like listening, please give us a review, share it with a friend, let us know what your favorite episodes are. And if you'd like to stay in touch over social media, we are Planted with Sarah Pion on Facebook and Planted with Sarah on Instagram and Twitter. You can also go to our website, www.plantedwithsarah.com or listen to us on our parent network, Radio Misfits Network, where there are other great podcasts like one of my favorites, the Winemakers Podcast. So check it out. You can listen to Planted wherever you listen to your favorite podcast, whether that's Pandora, Spotify, Amazon, Google, Apple, Stitcher, tune in. We are there. So join us. And until next time, stay curious, stay safe. And remember, it's a wild world out there. Be good to one another. Until next time, take care. Mm -hmm.